Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Don Johnson, and this is For All Time, Episode 2. It is Friday, December 31st, 2.27 p.m. I'm just going to read an article here that I just saw come out. Um, and I'll just begin it here. Beloved actress, comedian, and American icon Betty White has died just weeks before a milestone birthday. This is from uh, TMZ. Law enforcement sources tell TMZ Betty passed away at her home Friday morning. A trailblazer and pioneer in media, Betty had the longest-running career for any woman in TV prior to her death, starring in multiple shows over the past eight decades, starting way back in 1939. Betty is perhaps most famous for her lead role as Rose Nyland in The Golden Girls, which ran from 1985 to 1992. She'd been in tons of other big hits throughout her life, though. Betty got her start in radio in the 40s, making appearances on Blondie, The Great Gildersleeve, and This Is Your FBI. She eventually got her own radio program, and in 1949, she began working on a TV variety show with Al Jarvis called Hollywood on Television, which she later co-hosted before breaking out into more TV roles. Her breakout comedic role came in 1973 when she played Sue Ann Nivens on The Mary Tyler Moore Show, which ran until 1977, and then she got her starring role on The Betty White Show. With 115 acting credits to her name, Betty had roles in productions like Life with Elizabeth, Date with the Angels, The Love Boat, Mama's Family, The Golden Palace, Ladies' Man, That 70s Show, Higley Town Heroes, Boston Legal, The Bold and the Beautiful, Pound Puppies, Hot in Cleveland, and many, many, many other shows and films. She's won five Primetime Emmy Awards, including two for Mary Tyler Moore, one for Golden Girls, and one for her 1975 SNL appearance, along with Screen Actors Guild Awards, American Comedy Awards, and even a 2012 Grammy. She's been nominated for several Golden Globes and also has been honored with lots of Lifetime Achievement Awards and celebrations through several organizations. Last time we got Betty on camera, she was teasing starting a Facebook page for herself. As we told you, Betty had been extra cautious during the pandemic, mostly chilling at home and passing the time by reading, watching TV, and doing crossword puzzles. Betty was 99, and she was getting set to celebrate her 100th birthday on January 17th. Rest in peace. That's right. Rest in peace to a legend. Just wanted to read that first. This is from New York Times business section today, Friday, December 31st. BBC plans to examine Dershowitz's appearance on Maxwell segment by Ina J. Kahn. On Wednesday evening, BBC viewers heard from the American lawyer Alan M. Dershowitz about the guilty verdict in the case of Ghislaine Maxwell, who was convicted that day of helping the billionaire Jeffrey Epstein recruit, groom, and sexually abuse underage girls. What they were not apprised of was that Mr. Dershowitz had helped defend Mr. Epstein and has himself been accused of abuse by one of Mr. Epstein's accusers. 
an accusation he denies. The British broadcaster, which introduced Mr. Dershowitz as a constitutional lawyer, said later in a statement released on Twitter that the interview did not meet his editorial standards. Mr. Dershowitz was not a suitable person to interview as an impartial analyst, and we did not make the relevant background clear to our audience, the statement said. We will look into how this happened. Mr. Dershowitz is a longtime criminal defense lawyer known for representing high-profile clients, including former President Donald J. Trump and O.J. Simpson. His connection to Mr. Epstein became mired with personal accusations when in 2014, Virginia Jeffrey, who is among Mr. Epstein's most prominent accusers, said in a court filing that Mr. Dershowitz was one of the Epstein friends to whom she was offered for sex. In the BBC interview, Mr. Dershowitz said that, Mr. Mac uh, that Ms. Maxwell's trial undermined the credibility of Ms. Jeffrey and her case against Prince Andrew, whom she has also accused of sexually abusing her when she was still a minor and he was a guest of Mr. Epstein. Prince Andrew, the second son of Queen Elizabeth II, denies that claim. Miss hmm. Jeffrey did not testify at Ms. Maxwell's trial, and Mr. Dershowitz speculated that the prosecutors had concerns about Ms. Jeffrey's credibility. The trial of Ms. Maxwell, the former companion to the disgraced financier Mr. Epstein and the daughter of a British media mogul, was widely seen as the courtroom reckoning that Mr. Epstein never had. The omission of Mr. Dershowitz's connection to the case ignited criticism online over conflict of interest. Sarah Churchwell, an American professor at the University of London, was among those weighing in. The BBC never explained its connection to the case, Professor Churchwell wrote in an email. Quote, At no point did the BBC journalist challenge Dershowitz or even mention his conflicts of interest, although he himself had just raised them more than once, she wrote. In a Substack newsletter published on Thursday, Mr. Dershowitz defended his appearance on the news channel. The media has repeatedly interviewed victims of Epstein's abuse, he wrote. It is entirely appropriate for the media to interview victims of Jeffrey's false accusations as long as there is full disclosure and no one is misled. All right, here's something that won't concern you at all. Grinch bots are putting some grift into GIFs. This is in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday's Thursday, December 30th. This is in their like, uh, commentary section, a little uncredited box. Grinch bots are putting some grift into GIFs. So-called Grinch bots, who snatch high-demand items to resell at higher prices, had a field day this holiday season. Bad bot activity grew nearly 73% in November from October, according to Imperva Research Labs, a cybersecurity company. Grinch bots attack, attract the most attention during the holiday shopping period, but they operate year-round, and the continuing supply chain-related product shortages and high online sales traffic are creating a perfect storm. Gift cards, which were especially popular this year, are another favorite for bots, Casada, another security company, said automated online gift card lookup attempts have surged during this year's holiday shopping period. Those looking to gift a piece of digital art might have also been scalped by bots, which, of course, are active in the non-fungible tokens market, which we will get to. 
Bots are drawing enough ire that the lawmakers reintroduced a bill last month to curb their activity. Meanwhile, some savvy shoppers are choosing just to play the game, with some paying $99 a month just to make sure a shopping bot can nab that PlayStation 5 in time. If you can't beat them, join them. That is the opinion of the Wall Street Journal, or an agent of the Wall Street Journal. Speaking of NFTs, actually, let's read this next. Fans of BTS boo the idea for NFTs, and this is in today's uh, business section of the Wall Street Journal by Jiang Sung. Seoul. When BTS unveiled plans last month to break into the NFT business, the South Korean boy band supporters revolted online, threatening boycotts, lodging environmental concerns. In its first public comments after the fan backlash, BTS's management agency, Hybe Co., said it wouldn't bow to the pressure, vowing to move forward with plans for non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. The initial endeavor will center on digital photo cards of BTS members and will launch within the first half of 2022, said John Kim, project lead of Hybe America, overseeing the NFT business in a statement to the Wall Street Journal. We believe NFTs have the potential for expansion and hope they will provide fans with a more varied experiences and opportunities to express themselves, Mr. Kim said. A wave of artists, celebrities, and companies have planted their flags in NFTs, eager to find new revenue streams by peddling authenticated virtual goods. But the move can alienate consumers over the impact that blockchain and crypto technology have on the environment or fall flat over unfamiliarity with the digital fandom. BTS ranks among the music industry's most profitable artists, boosted by tens of millions of fans worldwide who eagerly snap up band-branded face masks, figurines, even McDonald's chicken nuggets. Hybe generates more than $200 million a year in merchandise and licensing sales, with BTS by far the the largest contributor. The seven-member South Korean group recently said it would take an extended break through at least March. BTS is short for Bangtan Sonia Don, or Bulletproof Boy Scouts, though for English speakers, the group also goes by Beyond the Scene. The pandemic pushed Hybe to expand its online offerings, such as live streaming concerts, and helped build its interest in NFTs, which are digital tokens similar to Bitcoin but different in that each one is unique. The BTS fan base criticized the NFT push immediately. Hashtags opposed the move. Hit, hashtags opposing the move hit Twitter's top trending list last month, and the movement continued since then. The bulk of criticism centers on the large energy consumption needed for NFTs, which rely on blockchain technology and are usually bought with cryptocurrencies. Supporters also argue an embrace of NFTs clashes with the BTS with BTS' own climate activism, which includes a recent speech at the United Nations General Assembly meeting. We all love BTS, but destroying the environment in any way is not how we want to support them, said Mel Palmer, a 31-year-old BTS fan from Philadelphia who has a large TikTok following and has helped mobilize online criticism. Forcing BTS fans to purchase MFT memorabilia with cryptocurrencies also brings financial risk given the volatility of digital currencies, said Shannon Melick, 27, of Washington, D.C., 
who has participated in the anti-NFT hashtag campaign. I worry about fans losing money, she said. It felt predatory that the company was pushing this on fans. Hybe said it had yet to decide how it is coming to NFTs or how it's coming NFTs would be sold and traded and that it was contemplating ways to minimize losses from cryptocurrency price fluctuations such as the option to pay in cash and other ways to reduce financial risks. Physical versions of the BTS photo cards are hoarded by fans. Some fetch thousands of dollars online. The cards get inserted into albums at random. NFT versions of the cards would be one way of Oh, I'm going to restart. Physical versions of the BTS photo cards are hoarded by fans. Some fetch thousands of dollars online. The cards get inserted into albums at random, so they're like the golden ticket. NFT versions of the cards would now be one way to counter widespread counterfeiting. The NFT platform for selling BTS digital photo cards will be operated by a joint venture between Hybe and Dunamu which runs South Korea's largest cryptocurrency exchange. Based on how the blockchain algorithm is programmed, the platform will consume less energy by being less reliant on energy-demanding mining to approve new transactions, said Kim Min-jung, Dumamu's NFT business development and strategy manager. The carbon footprint is almost negligible, she said. And that, I can promise, is extremely unlikely. So fans of Ozzy Osbourne, very down. Uh, fans of BTS, not not so down. This is uh, from Heard on the Street, Thursday, December 30th, 2021. Metaverse welcomes your investment. It could be worth taking a stake, even if you don't understand the virtual realm or plan to use it. In a 24-hour experiment with a virtual reality headset, Wall Street Journal personal technology columnist Joanna Stern described the metaverse last month as fractured, freaky, sometimes frightening, but also kind of fun. All in a virtual day's work, she traveled, exercised, and played games. As a legless torso that glides as a ghost, she even met with her editor. In real life, she nursed a headache. For the consumer, the metaverse doesn't seem ready for prime time, but given its fabled promise, maybe it is in these nascent shortcomings that make this piece of the so-called Web3, one word, Web3, especially attractive for investors to dive into right now. (coughs) This reminds me greatly of the beginnings of the virtual web, which was uh, a failed attempt to make a first-person explorable web um, in the very late 90s. It, It lived and died in the very late 90s. Um, cryptocurrency seems to be attracting everyone from the tech elite to musicians as a way to dip one's toe in the virtual water. Whether or not cryptocurrencies eventually replace fiat ones like the U.S. dollar, as enthusiasts predict, the U.S. or the blockchain technology they are built on will no doubt rule in the metaverse. Blockchains are essentially public, permanent digital ledgers on which cryptocurrency transactions, among other things, can operate. They enable decentralized, secure, and fast transactions and have no physical form perfect for a virtual realm uniting different people holding different currencies all across the physical world. Cryptocurrency may still seem, well, cryptic to you, but it's a good analogy for investing in the metaverse itself. You don't necessarily have to be sure of its destination to bet it will. it is likely to take off. 
Unlike fully baked industries, which boast years of user and sales metrics, even the most informed bet on the metaverse right now would be something of a leap of faith. Perhaps real estate is a good analogy. The best investments are often in the neighborhood you believe will become something in 10 years, not the neighborhood that is already something today. Naturally, investment firms are buying up real estate in the metaverse. Publicly traded tokens.com not only invests in crypto assets linked to non-fungible tokens, but it is also buying up virtual metaverse land. In a recent Wall Street Journal report, Chief Executive Officer Andrew Kugel likened to buying metaverse real estate today to buying land in Manhattan 250 years ago. Video game makers already create multiplayer worlds that are akin to miniature metaverses. They are now selling virtual clothing, weapons, and other gear in the form of NFTs. The hope is that people will be able to trade and resell them and use them across games and on next-gen social media. This month, the journal reported that Zynga and Ubisoft Entertainment are experimenting with this strategy and that Electronic Arts, Playtica, and others are eyeing the use of NFTs to engage players in the future. Formerly Facebook, Meta Platforms, well, formerly Facebook, now Meta Platforms, is, oh, they're actually called Meta, I thought they were just called Meta. Meta Platforms is the next generation of social media in the metaverse. The company offers a virtual reality space for business meetings, now in beta, something Microsoft will all offer soon with Mesh. Meta is already big into VR headsets, like the one the journal M, the journals M. Stern used for her experiment, and is now buying into VR game companies. But it's Meta is already big into VR headsets, like the one. And if I'm looking at these headsets, these headsets don't look like. I guess they're Quest Twos. So if you've seen a Quest Two, if you've seen a Quest Two, then you you've probably seen what I'm looking at in this photo of the uh, I don't know some writers testing them at some kind of event. Hmm. At least that's what they have right now. It looks like they also have like something else maybe on the front of them. Uh, let's see, I digress. But a social media competitor, Snap, which has long called itself a camera company and eschews the term metaverse, is challenging meta in the virtual world too. It has offered augmented reality features, lenses, and spectacles for years now. Spectacles are those glasses with cameras built into them. They're bizarre and creepy. And back in 2016, it acquired the maker of Bitmoji, a personalized cartoon avatar one can create, which you've definitely seen before. Today, the company says 200 million people are engaging with this AR technology every day to do things like try on clothing, learn about space, history, and art, even take care of digital pets. In other words, you may be invested in a future metaverse company without even knowing it. Computer systems company NVIDIA already has the Omniverse. Google parent Alphabet is focused on developing artificial intelligence, and Apple is knee-deep in wearables. We're going to have to look into the NVIDIA Omniverse thing because I don't know about that, and I should. Even online dating platforms are starting to talk about more virtual applications. Bumble said it active, it's actively exploring the role of its friendship feature, BFF, in the metaverse, noting that not just a social experience, but virtual goods that users could acquire via blockchain. Match Group's Tinder is testing in-app currency daters can use to pay for premium features and receive gifts. In its third quarter shareholder letter, Match also talked about a test recently acquired, a test by recently acquired HyperConnect of a live virtual world 
called Singletown, where singles can engage with others as avatars. There's a lot to think about in that paragraph. Uh, we'll continue. For companies not yet in the metaverse, it's easy to see where they would find value. Teleport to a private bubble, as Mark Zuckerberg recently distributed, uh, described the experience, and one day you'll find yourself online, and one day you could find online travel agents selling you trips to remote real-life locales. Owners of virtual reality homes in the metaverse might rent them out on platforms like Airbnb. Whatever your feelings on automated home flippers, the algorithmic assessment of property values should be well-suited to virtual properties. Consider the benefits to unit, econo <laughs> unit economics. In the metaverse, even the renovations would be digitized. So think about this, right? If every... Thing exists in a in a digital world, and Facebook is planting their flag, and they're out there before, and they will attract the investors and the concepts and the deals with co other companies that have the same ideas, like Bumble and Apple and let's see, Match, which owns all the dating things. So imagine imagine this: they virtualize every human experience so that we never have to leave the home at all. So in fact, we can date, live, um, exchange gifts, all in the virtual world, never actually being anywhere physically, other than exactly where we want to be. Sounds horrible, but also it sounds like everything that's happening already. So, Snap said it initially started working on silly AR lenses like puppy faces in part to lower the barriers to self-expression. Now it says its users are playing with its AR technology on average more than 6 billion times a day. Maybe the same will play out in the metaverse for shy consumers in the dating world or for companies who want to try out a new concept but can't afford to take the risk of spending big bucks on physical storefronts, supplies, and labor. If the metaverse really is to be the next generation of the internet, then pretty much every tech company will want to find a way to adapt to it or else risk fading in the real world. And that means even if the concept of using the metaverse still seems remote to you, your investment in it could be inevitable and it is you'll you'll invest in it even if you don't buy a single stock though the whole world's invested in replacing everything that we look at all the time this is on the cover of today's wall street journal friday december 31st the ball will drop, COVID or not, if John Trowbridge has his way. New Year's ritual hangs on the man who manages the Orb's tech systems. The New Year's Eve ball drop in Times Square is a Manhattan ritual that an estimated billion people watch worldwide. Its success hangs on John Trowbridge, who manages the Sphere's tech systems. So this year, Mr. Trowbridge, operating at one of America's most crowded intersections, felt he simply couldn't, must, and would not get COVID-19. He waited daily test results, showing if he held the line against the virus and might still be on the rooftop overseeing the drop. For the past 25 years, Mr. Trowbridge has spent the week before New Year's Eve living in hotel rooms and working 10-hour days, installing and testing systems, replacing parts, and supervising a crew of nine. The longest 15 minutes of my life, he said, are between 11.45 and 11.59 when the ball moves. With the Omicron variant sweeping through New York City, Mr. Trowbridge gets COVID tests every day, he said. 11 of his friends and associates have tested positive, he says. 
There are backups for other team members, but not for Mr. Trowbridge. His experience with the event makes him extremely important now, said Jeffrey Strauss, president of Countdown Entertainment, which puts on the event with the nonprofit Times Square Alliance. In the events business, the show must go on, said Mr. Trowbridge. He had gone out of his way to take precautions. Returning to his hotel at night, he walked in the street with traffic instead of on the sidewalk packed with pedestrians. He wore KN95 masks and always carried a five-pack with him. He had a small Christmas gathering this year with his mother and a few others. Everybody's vaccinated and boosted. We kept our distance from each other, he said. Mom got a hug when she showed up, and Mom got a hug when she left. It worked, up until days before the ball drop. I have tested positive, Mr. Trowbridge said Wednesday. Now, like millions around the world, he must figure out how to get his job done remotely. Unless his test results prove wrong, he will need to orchestrate the ball drop and watch it happen from his hotel room where he has decamped, as he does every year from his New Jersey home. I feel fine, he said, by phone from his hotel room Wednesday. I'm certainly in contact with everybody over there. I've been carrying a radio. The setup with Mr. Trowbridge supervising his crew remotely is, in quotes, totally unprecedented for us, end quote, said Mr. Strauss, the event's executive producer. John's story is really this story that's happening not only here in Times Square, but everywhere. The drop dates to 1907, inspired by a maritime tradition in which ports dropped a time ball at noon so navigators could adjust their ship's chronometers, said Mr. Strauss. This year's ball is the seventh iteration, 12 feet wide and 11,875 pounds with 32,256 LEDs. It was after a ball drop debacle that Mr. Trowbridge got the contract to tend the descent. At the end of 1995, the first year computer controls replaced four guys with ropes, one with stopwatch and a supervisor. The ball descended two seconds late, Mr. Strauss said. John came in the very following year. Mr. Strauss said, and it's been perfect ever since. During the week of a typical drop, Mr. Trowbridge's New Jersey events company, The Wolf Productions, he is the only full-time employee, moves into the ball control room on the top floor of One Times Square, a largely empty 22-story building whose roof hosts the ball drop. He enters through the backdoor storage area of Walgreens, of a Walgreens store on the ground floor and takes a restricted elevator up to his temporary office a windowless industrial space. He typically spends the week before the drop inspecting the ball's pre-programmed lighting system. He looks after the satellite receivers on the roof, which pull down a time code signal from the National Institute of Standards and Technology atomic clock in Colorado. His normal December 31st starts at 4.45 a.m. when he arrives to supervise media events. At 6 p.m., he is there to supervise the ball's climb up the pole. Mr. Strauss and other luminaries together flip this giant switch. <laughs> I editorialized this, but they flip the giant switch that initiates the ascent. I look at John, and he counts me down, Mr. Strauss said, and, and I completely depend on him to make sure I flip the switch at the right time. The satellite time signal is synced to the lighting system, which automates the changing colors and patterns on the ball from when it is raised at 6 p.m. until the drop at midnight. The signal is also synced to display in the control room. At the stroke of, as the stroke of midnight approaches, Mr. Trowbridge normally mans the roof, and his, his assistant, Tori Cates, watches that display and presses a button that starts the ball's descent at 11.59 p.m. Mr. Cates will still push the button 
Mr. Strauss said, whether Mr. Trowbridge is counting down from the rooftop of one Times Square or from a hotel five minutes away, he said, the ball's still going to drop. Mr. Trowbridge has stocked up with a spare radio battery and is fully charging his cell phone to stay in touch with his team, in whom he said he had in whom which he said he has 100% confidence. The manual button and the system's lack of an internet connection aim to keep hackers or technical glitches from dropping the ball, he said. If it all goes well, Mr. Kate's button press will send the ball down approximately 75 feet on two steel cables over exactly 60 seconds. On the roof of one Times Square, the numerals 2022 have replaced the 2021. Once the ball falls behind 2022, it will go dark, numerals will light up, and the crowd will ring in the new year. My job is to make sure that the ball drop happens on time and it all looks perfect, Mr. Trowbridge said. And that's what's going to happen, and I'm going to do my job perfectly. And uh, we'll all find out uh, tonight. I'm sure he'll do just fine. Here's a quick one you're guaranteed to enjoy. Tesla curbs in-car video games after U.S. probe. This is by uh, Rebecca Elliott. This is the business section of Friday's Wall Street Journal. Uh, bottom half of the front. Tesla Inc. is restricting access to games available in its vehicles, disabling a feature that allowed people to play games on front touchscreens while driving, according to the top U.S. auto safety regulator. I'm going to read that one more time. Tesla Inc. is restricting access to games available in its vehicles, disabling a feature that allowed people to play games on a front touchscreen while driving, while driving, according to the top U.S. auto safety regulator. The reversal comes after the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration concerned about possible possible driver distraction launched an investigation into the feature this week. For roughly a year, people could play games on the front touchscreen of some Teslas while the vehicles were in motion, the agency said. Previously, people could only do so while parked, according to the NHTSA. Tesla didn't respond to a request for comment about the reversal or the timing of its planned change. Tesla has sometimes struck a combative tone with regulators. This year, the company said that it disagreed with the NHTSA that touchscreen failures constituted a defect in its vehicles, though it agreed to move forward with the recall of roughly 135 Model S sedans and Model X sport utility vehicles. The NHTSA has said it received a consumer complaint about Tesla's in-car gaming earlier this year. The agency said it isn't aware of any crashes or injuries linked to the feature. Available games included Solitaire, Skyforce Reloaded, and The Battle of Polytopia. It's actually a great game available on Android. You should enjoy it. Just take a look. It's free. Certain other games weren't available unless vehicles were parked. One of those games was The Witcher 3. So extrapolate the other games that people were playing in their cars while they were on autopilot going down the interstate next to you what well, you weren't even thinking about it it was happening hey here's something from the cover of monday december 27th usa today usa today snapshots bottom left corner uh this is the front below the fold how was your year americans are split on how 2021 went with them went for them personally, but few call it a good time for the nation. This uh, source is uh, Ipsos Survey. 
It was a bad time for me and my family. 50%. I think 2021 was a bad time. 80% think it was a bad time for the country. So that's just a little fun Ipsos survey that USA Today wanted to let us all be aware that we were all having a bad time. We all think we're all having a bad time. In fact, we think that at large, we're all having a bad time even more than just ourselves. Everyone's having a bad time. Here's something interesting. This is from uh, Friday, December 24th. So the world news section of the Wall Street Journal. Russian mercenaries fill void left by West and Mali uh, by Benoit Facon and James Marson. I didn't know he escaped the old West to become a journalist. Russian mercenaries have deployed to the African country of Mali, European government said, opening a new front in a confrontation with the West at the same time as Moscow has gathered military forces around Ukraine. The deployment comes after French forces in Mali earlier this month left a base in Timbuktu, part of a military drawdown after struggling to quash an Islamist insurgency. On Thursday, a French-led group of European nations that have helped fight al-Qaeda in Africa said the foreign fighters can only further deteriorate the security situation in West Africa. The European countries, which also included the UK, Germany, and Italy, accused the Russian government of providing material to support the deployment and called on Russia to revert to responsible and constructive behavior in the region. The Kremlin has said it doesn't know anything about the military presence of Russian companies in Mali and has no connection to them. They may, as well, they may well have interest there, a Kremlin spokesman said this week, but again, that has nothing to do with us. The Malian deal with mercenaries from the Wagner Group, which Western officials say charges Mali $10 million a month, is part of Russia's effort to spread the influence on the continent at little cost to the Kremlin. Basically, they're the author of the article is implying that Russia is using mercenaries to do work that they um, would rather not do as a state, officially. The U.S. says the outfit is owned by a businessman close to the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. Wagner has deployed forces to the Central African Republic, uh, to Syria, simultaneously seeking profits from local deals. Uh, to exploit resources, including natural gas and diamonds. The situation in Mali reflects a conundrum faced by Western powers as they withdraw from or avoid conflicts in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and parts of Africa. Mercenaries, particularly from Russia, are increasingly stepping in to protect weak governments from radical Islamists and other insurgents. Nature hates a vacuum, so the Russians are trying to fill the gap, said Eric Prince, the founder of U.S. mercenary firm Blackwater, which... (laughs) which had passed contracts with the U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan to much public information. French officials believe the Malian government hired Wagner for leverage to avoid holding elections and to stay in power. Newly resurgent guns for hire are handing a tactical advantage to countries willing to use them to counter adversaries and spread influence. Turkey has deployed contingents of Syrian fighters under its control to wars in Libya and Azerbaijan. Middle Eastern governments have fielded proxy armies in grinding civil wars in Libya and Yemen. 
Nigeria used mercenaries to combat Boko Haram insurgents. Mercenaries and new tools such as cheap attack drones promise to be the low-end elements of future conflicts for which U.S. and its allies are spending heavily on high-end technologies from aircraft carriers and submarines to sophisticated missiles to counter China and Russia. Battles will be fought on the periphery using groups like Wagner, said Sean McFate, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a Washington think tank. So, you know, you can trust everything that they have to say. Private military forces hark back to an earlier era when leaders used them to advance state and commercial enterprises and interests. Britain's East India Company, patronized by London, fielded military forces to help it become a commodities giant in the 18th century. Guns for Hire returned to the fore when the Pentagon contracted security company Blackwater in Iraq after the 2003 invasion to handle specific supporting tasks. Hmm such as guarding officials and installations to relieve the burden on U.S. troops. U.S. and European officials today say Wagner is a proxy for Russia's defense ministry used to spread the Kremlin's power. So they just say it right in the article. Mercenaries like drones lower the barrier of entry for risky engagements. They are less expensive than than a standing military, and importantly for governments eager to avoid direct confrontations and military casualties under national flags, easy to deny. In Mali, France had led a years-long military effort with U.S. logistical and intelligence support to quell an Islamist insurgency, but Paris aims to trim its forces amid fatigue with the effort and frustration with military coups in the country. The man identified by U.S. and European governments as Wagner's owner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, sent emissaries to Mali's capital, Bamanko, the summer after France said it would reduce its military presence in the region, say Western officials. Geologists connected to Wagner soon followed, visiting potential gold mining concessions in the Al-Qaeda stronghold of Mopti in central Mali, they said. The initial contingent has about 300 Russian mercenaries, the officials said. Mr. Prigozhin repeatedly has denied any connection with Wagner. Responding to questions about the Mali mission, Through his holding company's spokespeople, he said, The questions you ask speak of the chronic schizophrenia that can be observed in the government agencies of the so-called Western world. End quote. State Department spokesperson Ned Price condemned the potential deployment on December 15th, saying it diverted money from the Malian military and public services. The mercenaries will not bring peace to Mali, but rather will destabilize the country further. And, yeah, there's zero good outcomes to come from whatever that is setting up. All right. This is in uh, today's Times A13. This is a a short article. Um, but it connects to, if you've seen the video of the Chuck E. Cheese being consumed by uh, inferno winds of 110 miles an hour, as uh, claimed in the video description, um, this is the story connected to that to tell you what's going on. And if you haven't seen that video, look it up, because it's a vision of hell. 30,000 flee wind-driven Colorado bl- blazes by Christine Chung and Michael Levinson. 
Wildfires fanned by powerful winds forced the evacuation on Thursday of more than 30,000 residents of two municipalities in Boulder, Colorado. The Boulder County Office of Emergency Management announced evacuation orders for Superior and Louisville, urging residents to act quickly and escape danger as the sky turned orange, ash swirled in the wind, and buildings were engulfed in flames. Plumes of smoke were visible from miles away in the city of Boulder, as wind gusts in the area reached up to 80 miles per hour, according to the National Weather Service. Governor Jared Polis declared a national state of er, declared a state of emergency in response to the grass fires, allowing the state to tap emergency funds to deploy state resources, including the Colorado National Guard. Quote, prayers for thousands of families evacuating the fires in Superior and Boulder County, Mr. Polis said on Twitter. Fast winds are spreading flames quickly and all aircraft are grounded, end quote. Louisville, a city about 13 miles southeast of Boulder, has about 21,200 residents. Superior, a town about 8 miles southeast of Boulder, has about 13,000 residents. Emily Hogan, a spokeswoman for Louisville, said officials had ordered an evacuation for all but two parts of the city. Traffic was heavy, she said, as residents fled. It's really smoky, and there are some areas where it's been hard to breathe outside. And you can see flames depending where you are in the city, she said. The situation is continuing to evolve rapidly, and we want everyone to be prepared to take action if needed. It wasn't yet clear, Ms. Hogan said, whether the fires had caused damage or injuries. And I had looked it up today, and, and miraculously, they called it a miracle at the time, nobody had died. So that's probably the only reason I'm reading this. A Vista Adventist Hospital, a 114-bed hospital in Louisville, said it had evacuated its neo natal intensive care and intensive care units as well as its emergency department moving patients to two other hospitals the hospital staff members were sheltering in place and nearby roads were closed the hospital said the louisville police department told residents to evacuate east or north the evacua- evacuations came as wildfires in the american west had been worsening growing larger and spreading faster and reaching into the mountain elevations that were previously too wet and cool to have supported fierce fires What was once a seasonal phenomenon has become a year-round menace, with fires burning later into the fall and into the winter. Recent research has suggested that heat and dryness associated with global warming are major reasons for the increase in bigger and stronger fires. As rainfall patterns have been disrupted, snow melts earlier, and meadows and forests are scorched and kindling. We haven't had any snow this year. Maybe a dusting. John Stein, 43, who evacuated with his dog and two children from Superior, said in an interview. Quote, It's generally not this windy, and certainly things are not usually on fire, at least not in Colorado, end quote. Blasting wind gusts and numerous road closures complicated evacuation efforts. Video that circulated on social media showed cars moving in thick gray orange and orange plumes of smoke and confused grocery shoppers being evacuated into the smoky haze. I do suggest go looking up those videos. They're harrowing but um, informative see what some other people your fellow countrymen are up to um let's see Hmm. how about we take a look at the world of adult contemporary very quickly this is from uh yesterday's usa today the 30th or yes 2021 top adult contemporary songs from the December 23rd year-end airplay charts. Adult Contemporary. Circles, Post Malone. Adore You, Harry Styles. I Hope by Gabby Barrett featuring Charlie Puth. 
Before You Go, Louis Capaldi, and Blinding Lights, The Weeknd. Adult Contemporary, 2021. This is in... Uh, Yes, December 24th's New York Times. Hong Kong removes statue that memorialized victims killed in Tiananmen Square by Mike Ives. The authorities in Hong Kong on Thursday removed a statue that memorialized those killed in the 1989 government massacre of pro-democracy demonstrators in Beijing, the latest crackdown on political dissent in the Chinese territory. <clears throat> the 26-foot copper statue known as the Pillar of Shame was created by the Danish sculptor Jens Galshot, we'll just say that, in 1996 and shows a pile of naked corpses arranged into what looks like a ghastly obelisk. It commemorates the June 4th, 1999 massacre of pro-democracy students and workers around Tiananmen Square by the Chinese government. The Tiananmen massacre is among the most delicate topics in Chinese politics and has been largely erased from history on the Chinese mainland. But for more than two decades, Mr. Gaussiot's statue was a symbol of the pro-democracy movement in a territory that enjoyed freedoms unimaginable in the mainland. In 1997, weeks before Britain returned the territory to Chinese control, the statue was shipped to Hong Kong and exhibited at an annual candlelight vigil for Tiananmen victims, according to the Hong Kong Free Press, a local news organization. It was later moved to the campus of the University of Hong Kong. For years, students would gather and to wash the statue in a ceremony. And amid the fires and fury of the pro-democracy protests that engulfed the territory in 2019, the statue formed part of the backdrop as protesters set up barricades in a standoff with police. The statue's removal early Thursday is part of a crackdown in which Beijing has used an expansive national security law that it imposed on Hong Kong last year to prosecute activists and roll back civil liberties. In July, a Hong Kong court convicted a protester of terrorism and inciting sedition. In September, a Hong Kong alliance in support of patriotic democratic movements of China, the activist group that helped bring the pillar of shame to the territory in 1997, was forced to scrub its online presence. As workers removed the statue before dawn, journalists at the scene reported that the police had blocked off the area. Mr. Galshio, the statue's creator, had previously tried in vain to get permission to remove it himself along with the guarantee he would not be prosecuted under the security law if he came to Hong Kong to do so after the university demanded that it be taken away. On Thursday he followed along in real time on social media as the statue was removed expressing his dis disbelief. Fury in China after an outspoken teacher vanishes and the authorities keep silent. This is right below by Chris Buckley. Chinese social media sites have echoed for days with a question that has been met with silence by Communist Party officials. Where is Li Qiantan? Ms. Li, an outspoken but previously little-known teacher at a rural school in Hunan province, southern China, disappeared after telling friends that police officers had forced their way into her home and were taking her to a psychiatric hospital. She told them authorities had accused her of violating the bounds of officially acceptable comment on social media. 
In recent weeks, Ms. Li had publicly sympathized with a teacher in Shanghai who was hounded online and fired after saying that there should be more a rigorous study of China's official death count for the Nanjing Massacre, the Japanese Army's murder of residents that, of that city in 1937. I've been targeted by public security, Ms. Li said in one message to Kuai Jinji, a friend who has galvanized support for Ms. Li on the internet. Mr. Kua shared with the New York Times screenshots of Ms. Li's messages. I didn't commit any crime, so I can never admit to one, she told Mr. Kua. But they want to seize the chance to convict me. Ms. Lee, 27, has complained of bouts of depression. But many friends and supporters believe she has become a victim of a decades-old practice in China, using psychiatric confinement to stifle dissenters. Even if she was unwell, they have said enforced confinement was not an answer. The authorities have stayed mostly mute about Ms. Lee's disappearance on Sunday and did not answer repeated phone calls from the New York Times. Unusually, though, the censors have not shut down the nationwide outpouring of anger about her disappearance, possibly because central authorities see the case as a messy, controversial, a messy controversy best left to local authorities to clean up. Many of the comments, which just, many of the comments have been from supporters who see her as a symbol of the damage wrought by the Chinese government's heavy-handed censorship under Xi Jinping, who has demanded political loyalty, including from teachers. Her supporters have also criticized the nationalists who attacked Ms. Lee online for bucking official orthodoxy. Ms. Lee has also said she is four months pregnant, adding to fears for her safety. Restore her freedom, this is a quote, restore her freedom and formally apologize. Huang Zhan, a commentator on Weibo, another popular social media platform, declared in a video statement. Your ignorance, idiocy, and barbarity are an utter disgrace for China. In quotes. Hu Zhijin, the recently retired chief editor at the Global Times, a popular Communist Party-run newspaper, urged officials in Hunan to explain what had happened to Ms. Li, though he also said readers should withhold their judgment until there was more information. Later on Thursday, Mr. Hu shared a video online in which a woman who described herself as Ms. Lee's mother said a relative working in the local education bureau had taken Ms. Lee to a psychiatric hospital to treat her depression. In previous decades, Chinese officials regularly committed persistent petitioner, petitioners and protesters to psychiatric hospitals, citing criticism from human rights advocates and doctors. Guo Zhang, a Chinese writer who recently published a book on the topic, said in an interview that the practice was less frequent, but it still took place. Quote, this tool of treating someone as mentally ill is quite a useful tool for local governments, Mr. Guo said in, a message responses, in message responses to questions. It's a way of completely skating around the law, end quote. Some studies have indicated that the the number, the general number of people held for involuntary psychiatric treatment in China has fallen since a law was introduced in 2013 to regulate mental health policies. Still, abuses persist. If the local authorities suspect someone of committing a crime, they could consign the person to a psychi psychiatric confinement without any family consent, said Jerome A. Cohen, a professor at the New York University School of Law who is an expert on Chinese law and has studied the issue. In that and other ways, Professor Cohen wrote by email, my strong impression overall is that arbitrary detentions have increased under Xi Jinping's rule, end quote. 
In a memoir published online, Ms. Lee described how she aspired to become a writer since her childhood in Zhejiangji, a verdant but poor area of Hunan. While joining her mother, working in a factory in southern China, Ms. Lee recalled she had read voraciously at night while others, while other workers played cards. She later studied at a teacher's training college and found work as a rural teacher. She wrote poems and essays about her experiences and posted them online. Zhang's parents, quote, Zhang's parents are divorced, Li's parents too, and Wang's also, she wrote in one poem about her students. But in their compositions, they all love this great era, end quote. Ms. Li first came to nationwide attention in 2019 when she denounced local education officials for drowning the creativity and commitment of teachers with, a constant, with constant inspections and red tape, a sentiment that found broad support. This time, in the days before her disappearance, Ms. Li sent out increasingly urgent online messages about threats from local police and education officials, who said her comments about the Nanjing massacre were inappropriate. Ms. Li also became a target for nationalist ire for her comments, which is, which is a visceral touchstone for Chinese memories of the war against Japan. Local officials and police officers demanded that she sign a statement admitting error and threatened to dismiss her, she told Ms. Mr. Ke. She resisted, at points denying that she had made the comment and has not been heard from since, alerting friends that a group of people were taking her away, Mr. Kuo said. Citizen, quote, Citizens have freedom of speech, Mr. Kwa said in an interview. If I mistake that 2 plus 2 equals 5, you can correct me, but you shouldn't convict me. I hope that she can return home safely, end quote. And uh, that is all I think that I'd like to cover for today. I have plenty of other articles, but they will show up for you on, let's say... Tuesday morning. So I hope that you enjoy this and that I hope that you enjoy the irony that I would have already picked out this song to close us out before I had read or knew about the first story. Thank you. Please tell your friends and uh, please donate to your local food bank.